Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think there is a missing piece in the academic world, which is how to acknowledge indigenous knowledge. Because although it's not formatted to the Western academic world, it provides equal, valuable knowledge and could actually guide to the discovery and has guided in the past to the discovery of things that are saving lives right now in the Western world. Adventure Podcast, and this episode with Dr. Rosa Vasquez Espinosa. Rosa is a biologist, conservationist, and National Geographic explorer. She's of Peruvian Andean and Amazonian descent, and Rosa grew up learning about traditional medicine from her grandmother in their backyard's natural pharmacy. Faced with the choice of whether to pursue a life as a scientist or professional dancer, she chose the former. She's since gone on to discover new antibiotics and green chemistry tools. And she now travels to some of the most interesting environments on the planet, from the Amazon rainforest to Yellowstone to acidic boiling waters, searching for some of the tiniest creatures known to man. This episode is unlike any other. It's inspiring and entertaining, but I also learned so much from Rosa. From the secret life of microbes to stingless bees in the boiling rivers, this episode is an insight into the incredibly exciting, varied and critical world of frontline field science. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Dr. Rosa Vasquez Espinosa. So, please, could you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Yeah, well, hi, Matt. It's so lovely to chat with you. Uh, my name is Rosa. Uh, I'm Peruvian. I grew up uh, between the jungle and the mountains and then attended school in the city, and I became a scientist. Um, so I conduct research specifically in the Amazon rainforest, and over the years, that naturally led me to science communication. So I've become a storyteller and public speaker. And, and I used to dance professionally before diving fully into the science as well. That's kind of, that's quite the career. 
<laughs> Somebody was asking me about that recently, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I it feels like a different time in like a, like a different lifetime." And you know, I feel like I'm still relatively young, and it's just the possibilities of living multiple lives. It's always, always exciting to me. Yeah, totally. Now that resonates with me deeply. Um, so, what was life like for you growing up? You know, between the the kind of jungle and the mountains. Um, to be honest, I never appreciated what it meant until I left Peru when I was eighteen to study undergrad. Um, so, my family comes from different areas in Peru. From my mom's side, comes from a tiny small town that it takes. It's actually quite dangerous to go back to even now because you have to be on a bus that it's like on this major cliff where accidents commonly happen. So as I grew up, we only went back uh, up, to a, up to a certain age, but I used to spend some summers there helping some of my distant aunts collect potatoes. <laughs> so I learned how to harvest and I would come back with their accent, which was they spoke mostly Quechua um, and then some Spanish, but with a heavy Quechua accent. So I would come back with that back to school. And then my that side of the family comes more from the jungle side. So they also, they both, both sides of the family immigrated to you know, have a family and provide them with like better education and access to health. And from my dad's side of the family, I had a lot of cousins in the Amazon. So sometimes, again, for some summers outside of school, they would just shoot me off to the Amazon. And I there's these photos and memories where I am literally in a small traditional boat, just meandering in the Amazon River and then playing with monkeys that used to be more common back there to just have in your backyard. Um, and just all these experiences that I never thought were so different until I realized very few people get to experience that and the possibility that I had to go to school in a bilingual school in Lima and learn English and Italian growing up and have this exposure to so much of the science and growing up with the internet. I'm a millennial kid. Um, it was just extraordinary to then kind of go back and immediately realize the privilege I had to grow in these spaces, but also the lack of information we truly have on what, not just life, what, what's life like, but also what we truly have over there and how to re, like revalue it. And the books I was written were mostly written by people that were not from the area or the, you know, things I was seeing were not necessarily highlighting people that were from the area. So yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey. And what was it specifically that pushed you down kind of the scientific route? I guess you could have gone anywhere, done anything. What was it that motivated that, that journey? When I was 17 and applying for schools, I was this close to either go the literature route or science routes. Um, and I think I've, I've had a big exposure to the arts growing up, but... I also spent a lot of time with my grandmother um, when my parents were working and then I was not in school. Every afternoon I would be with her. She never got the chance to go to school, but when they moved from the mountains, she really still wanted to have her farm and her, what we like to call the, her natural pharmacy, which that's just where she spent her time and where she felt comfortable. So she built that in the city in a small garden. She just built this whole plethora of like, amazing Andean medicinal plants that she knew how to use. And she was one of like the elderly healers back in her town. I never understood what that meant until 
I became a scientist, you know? Um, and so I was just spend time with her, seeing how she prepared things, whether it was for food or for like, I don't know, when somebody was injured or I had some skin issues. Um, and I, I think as I grew up along with her and going to school, I just had so many questions that she would respond from a cultural perspective and from like a mystical side and this type of, oh, this is what I learned by doing these type of things in the field, or this is what your great-grandmother told me, or this is what we know from the spiritual like cosmovision that we have in Peru. Um, but I think I still wanted to know what does that mean on the biology or chemistry or whatever fancy words I was learning at school at the time. And so there was a bit of an answer questions and nobody in my family was a scientist, but my dad had a passion for, I think his dream was to become a scientist. So he would just tell me like read things and then tell me this, what to me were crazy stories like, oh, I read that scientists in the US are now modifying the DNA of grapes to make them bigger. And I was like, what? That's cool. And he would just tell me stories in a way that sounded like magic that just left me wanting to know more. I think that's a really interesting angle. And I, you know, I asked this question with like kindness and genuine curiosity is as a scientist who's been exposed to this kind of, I mean, you use the word mystical, but kind of traditional medicine as well. How do you balance those two things? And are there crossover? There are crossovers. uh, And I, I can talk about that infinitely. And I think coming from that original aspect of growing up in Peru and then becoming a scientist, I've been coming back to my roots a lot more now that I feel established in the scientific field because I keep seeing not just parallelisms in the way that indigenous communities learn about traditional medicines and how do they even go about discovering, uh, but also because I think there is a missing piece in the academic world, which with my organization, we're really trying to, to change at least a little bit which is how to acknowledge indigenous knowledge, because although it's not formatted to the Western academic world, it provides equal or valuable knowledge and could actually guide to the discovery and has guided in the past to the discovery of things that are saving lives right now in the Western world and everywhere, really. And so how do you value that beyond the treaties that are in place, like Nagoya Protocol and international treaties to protect indigenous knowledge? All of that is great and it's definitely you know, safeguarding knowledge to a certain extent, but it's not taking it far, it's not elevating, it's not giving the place that I think it should deserve. Like, okay, my grandma never got a chance to attend school, but she's one of the most knowledgeable persons I know in plants, in plant medicine, you know, in her own way. So I think one of the ways to that we're trying to address that is engaging the indigenous communities we work with not just at the, oh, tell me about the culture and the mystical side, kind of what I, used, I grew up learning from my grandmother, but how can that be intertwined with the scientific process and then be co-authors in scientific publications? So kind of breaking the mold a little bit that you not only do you, like, you don't necessarily need to always be associated with a university or an academic institution to put your knowledge out there and have it valued. And I mean, I know very little about this, so feel free to educate me and tell me I'm wrong and, you know, et cetera. But how much are indigenous communities and indigenous knowledge kind of respected in the scientific world? And how much are their lessons, learnings, knowledge just taken by Western medicine, big pharma and and essentially appropriated or stolen? 
Oh, that's a deep question, Matt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so there, there's definitely many instances, of course, where knowledge has been appropriated. And that's not just from areas like Peru. It happened even in the United States, like in Yellowstone. Um, and the Yellowstone National Park harboring these extreme microbes that scientists in the 50s saw as pink goo and started to wonder, could life actually exist beyond the limits that we know of right now, which at the time they didn't think life could exist at high temperatures. And then somehow that led to the development of PCR testing for COVID. Yet, yeah, yet the national, the Yellowstone National Park never really got any benefits for that. So it was not necessarily associated with indigenous knowledge, but it was associated to a native or, you know, site. And after that, all these systems got in place to the point that now it's really virtually difficult as any scientist wanting to explore that space and, and take their research further. So now on, on the Amazonian side, many examples that has happened like that, the most recently one being in 2012 with this medicine called crofelomer that got FDA approval. It's one of the two only botanical drugs so directly derived from my plant, not like modified further in the lab to be taken into the, like the pharmacies. Uh, to treat certain type of infectious diarrhea in HIV patients. And that got extracted and continues to be extracted, um, although the details on that extraction are not fully transparent and clear, and that's where I was going to go into, uh, from a tree that we know as dragon blood. Have you ever heard of the dragon blood tree? No. So when you come to the jungle, you'll have to come with us, but there's these kind of thin tree trunks that are whitish, and if you do a cut, whether it's a small cut or a big cut, it will start bleeding. And that's where it got the name first. It basically, there's this deep, dark blood-like resin or latex that comes out of the tree um, that over time, indigenous communities have learned that it serves, it basically they know it as the liquid bandage. And I grew up using it all the time. We always had like in our medicine cabinet, a small bottle of that, that our uncles would send us from the jungle. Um, and you basically put it in your skin, you rub it, it turns white, and then it helps close and heal wounds really quickly. People take it internally as well for internal bleeding. Um, and I think there's some of the first Spanish missionaries that started to, to kind of document all of these uh, back in the day, claim that people use it to, to re like as one of the two-go medicines um, in the Amazon. Uh, and then I know that scientists were studying it for a long time because that latex is basically a complex of chemicals that all have different medicinal properties. And then they were able to identify one that eventually turned into this crofelomer. And all of that until then, that sounds great. And I actually have to dive a little deep into like the patents and all the information because I was just curious as to like, okay, that's fantastic. It seems like they have acknowledged like the origins and that they have conservation systems in place. Up until then, that's great, and that sounds good on paper, and that can satisfy most people. It's like, oh, okay, they're doing good. What does that actually mean? Because it's really easy to say that. Same with carbon offsetting. And so, but then when you start diving a little deeper, it's actually quite hard to even find the locations where they're harvesting these trees from. So I wish that the transparency was 
more present. And I think we've definitely got better compared to a long time ago. And in the 80s, the, it's known as the golden area of natural products where scientists would just go anywhere, cut trees. And there's even photos of big pharmaceutical companies that will send scientists and they would come back with these big bags filled with leaves <clears throat> considered medicinal so that they could extract it in the lab. And now, you know, science allows us to not necessarily having to do that all the time and do it in the lab, et cetera. But there's still so, so much to, to, to be explored. And so, yeah, it's interesting because I think there is a lot that the public could do there by requesting that transparency, the same that we have seen happen with beauty products, cosmetics and things. Oh, oh show me, you know, the originality of your products or your ingredients or the sustainability of it. And I think that's yet to still be seen in medicine. Yeah. And I mean, I shouldn't go too much into this, I guess, but I've just started working with an organization that are doing this. It's, you know, looking at essentially readdressing how we look at pharmaceutical companies and, mm. and, and the natural world and how we ethically, fully ethically and morally um, use the natural world as a method of curing, healing, preventing, etc., um, without capitalizing on it in a way that um, betrays, you know, the people who the, the environment belongs to, essentially. Um, and I just wonder if it's if you think it's because there's a disconnect with actually we think about, you know, paracetamol or ibuprofen that we buy from a pharmacy and we never consider what it actually is and where it actually comes from. And I have no idea. Yeah, I think there is a, a major disconnection. Like, for example, aspirin, another painkiller, comes from originally comes from a plant, from a leaf. Uh, and there is actually records that show that back in the day, they, they were analyzing the dental records or fossils from Neanderthals, and they found remains of the plant that produces aspirin. And they've also found the same in like big kind of gorilla-style type of studies, suggesting that from a long time ago, there was something in our system that knew where to go or what plants to consume to heal different types of things. And forgot to mention that Neanderthal studies, they correlated basically not just the presence of that leaf that produces aspirin, but that the, the teeth that were those remains were found also had indications that they had a, a tooth issue at the time, a bacterial disease in the teeth, suggesting that, oh, well, then they were in pain and they were consuming that. And something similar has been seen in animals. So I think... There, anyways, this natural nature human relationship is just fascinating to me. I do think there is some sort of a disconnect that I think is starting to slowly but surely change. And I think it kind of comes back to one of the things we were talking before we started uh, at the beginning on basically ensuring that you have local people and local experts in your team, not later on after you've already developed an idea, but from inception and even before inception and making sure that it's not just local experts, but also that you have community leaders ingrained from all of that beginning so that you don't happen to be like, I think at least the examples that I've mentioned um, have done, which is we go to all this process and then only at the end we're like, okay, how can we give you something back? Okay, we'll give you, you know, 5% of our sales in the country. Um, great, but is that really like the solution or the way to not just honor it, but the way to actually build longevity, right? Um, so I, I think it's just the inclusion and the entering with humility and the understanding and that 
the Western science and the methodologies that we have are not going to answer everything. And in fact, I think the story and the development and the discovery could be a lot more powerful if it happens in tandem with, and there are ways to do it. We just need to like not be scared to do that and to just be patient to do it. Even if it takes slightly longer with the idea that, oh, but time is business. I get it. Time is money. But I think nowadays we're showing that the public can drive a lot of that and then if the public demands transparency, then I think the companies, organizations, et cetera, driving this are going to take the time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to I'm really interested in kind of your area of expertise and field of work now. You know, what is your passion and focus professionally these days? Um, so... I finished a project which we're hoping to publish sometime soon on what kind of was our first attempt of taking everything that I had learned during my PhD and et cetera and applying it back to the Amazon. And it was focused on microbes from a bowling river. I don't know. Have you heard of the bowling river in the yeah. Amazon? I'll send you a link. It's as fascinating as it sounds. And it's exactly as it sounds. It's a river that you will quite literally see bubbling because there's these hot injections of boiling water. And we have found that the earliest records to it date back to 1800s, that there was already boiling river with a lot of capacity back then. And so it has had this capacity of boiling for a long time. So we were exploring that, and I cannot disclose information much, much yet, but I can tell you that we have found extremely interesting microbes and that one of the things that we thought coming in with was if you look for microbial life in places where you typically don't see them, you will find that they start releasing molecules as a way of protecting themselves or to be able to gain advantage of survival. And then they end up producing medicinal molecules or molecules that could lead to bioremediation tools. So we have found that and a lot of implications that I personally think could have um, a lot of po positive benefit to, to the zone. And then after we finished experiments for that, uh, about last year or so, I started a new project, which actually I do have to give the kudos to my local research partner, Cesar Delgado, who is a local scientist in Peru. He's been working in the jungle. Uh, he's descendant from the Kukama Kukamiri indigenous group. He's been working for 40 years in the field, one of the most knowledgeable people I know. Um, and one of his specialties is on medicinal insects. And we had collaborated before already on some papers, uh, but then there was this one project that he wanted to dive a little bit deeper, which was on stingless bees. Have you ever heard of stingless bees? No. Nope. Uh, you, do you know they exist at all? Okay. So stingless bees are a thing and they are real and do not sting. As well as it sounds, yes. <laughs> We all have grown up seeing, seeing the stinging bee to the point that as kids, we all literally draw the sting. Yet, most native bees around the world do not sting. They don't have that capacity. They do not have that stinger or they have a truncated version of the stinger. So they physically cannot sting. So evolutionarily, they've developed other methods of mechanisms. Some of them can bite. Some bite like tiny, like you barely feel them. Um, and then some can bite really strong that they will pull off skin. Uh, or they have other methods like getting latex like from the dragon blood tree, for example, which is known to be antimicrobial and then using that to build their little homes, their entries, their honeypots as to like de deter uh, pests from coming in. So they have these like a lot more complex interactions that we have grown up 
uh, already thinking about bees, which are already complex and beautiful on their own kind. Um, anyways, so stingless bees are native to really all around the tropics. There's about 500 unique species worldwide. One looks completely different from the other. So I've seen some that if I show you the photos, you will not believe that they're bees. Most people think they're ants and I like to play that game because I first thought they were ants when I first saw them and I felt really silly when I learned that they were stingless bees. They are tiny and black. Um, there's others that look as big as bumblebees. There are others that look a bit more greenish. So not your typical yellow and black stripe. Um, so this is like really a beautiful mix of anything, color, shape that you can think of. Uh, and there are about 500 unique species worldwide and about half of them alone, they're found in the Amazon rainforest. Many of them have been documented in the northern part of the Peruvian rainforest alone. Now, up until then, my colleague, my colleague had worked closely with five of the largest indigenous groups in the Amazonia to learn how they had been traditionally using stingless bees because although most of the world didn't know about stingless bees, Amazonians have been using them from before the Spanish came to Congress South America. However, there were no records of that. So anyways, they had been working on these and learning how to make the process more sustainably. Um, but they wanted to go farther, which is they know that they use that, the medicinal honey they make to treat different diseases. In fact, I think up to 14 diseases have been reported to be treated, including COVID. Um, and they wanted to know, okay, is it true? Is it honey truly medicinal or is it more like, a, oh, it makes, just me, makes me feel better? How does it compare? What is the chemistry within it? And so that's where they call me and saying, like, can you help us in this process? And we actually have the paper under re review right now, the first one. We just did it at a small scale. Um, but basically we took six samples from honey from two species that are the two most commonly grown and started to look at that. What kind of molecules can we find? And what I can tell you is that it is going along with the traditional knowledge. Whatever diseases they're treating them for, which is mostly upper respiratory, skin issues, um, even um, stomach problems, they are going in part with what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of plant-derived molecules, which makes sense, it, with antimicrobial, anti-tumor, anti-inflammatory, like, anti-a lot of things. Um, and this was done on a small scale, only with six samples, so we definitely need to repeat it, so I'm not going to like over-promise, but there's we are seeing something very different to what is seen with the stinging behind that we all get in the markets. Um, so yeah, that's the one project that I'm like fully focused on right now in the terms of like the science and the research world. It's so fascinating. And, you know, if I'm being really honest, I find this conversation kind of immensely hopeful because <laughs> I, you know, I read too much and about the state of the world and I read too much kind of quick hit news, but when I picture medicine, and I admit my naivety, when I picture medicine, I imagine kind of American scientists in laboratories, in lab coats, making things. It just never really occurred to me that people are going out into the field and looking still for natural remedy, because I think we have this. And I think some people might disagree with this or get cross with me for saying, but this kind of colonial attitude to like, well, we've already discovered all of that and we've worked out it doesn't work. So now we're making stuff in labs that's better. Yeah. But obviously that's just not true. But you know, like there's a, a quite precedent historically as to why, like the type of thinking that you're describing. So back in the 50s, 60s, it, it's what the US calls the golden era of natural products where people were actively going to nature 
scientists, etc., to collect samples from plants, animals, soils, waters, to try to look for new medicines. And if you look at the line of development of antibiotics, for example, just as a one kind of medicines, you see that the years where we discover most of the antibiotics that have saved so many lives and continue to do so come from that period. So there was this just massive uh, amount of discoveries. Now, what happened was that they realized that regardless of how many new samples they were bringing, they kept rediscovering the new ones that they had. So they had a peak and then scientists were like, well, we're rediscovering. And that rediscovery ended up finding the same things happened so often that they started, quote unquote, losing money, the companies. And so then they said, well, they make, this makes no sense. We're finding the same things. Everything's around, everywhere in the world is the same. We're going to find the same kind of medicines, no matter where you go in nature. So this makes no sense. We have like synthetic chemistry now. Let's turn to combinatorial and synthetic chemistry, which is around the 80s. And there was this major shift in the industry, in pharmaceutical industry, to just focus on like, no, humans can make it better. Computers are becoming a thing. We can think about this more strategically than nature can. And we can expand the chemical world or chemical structures um, and make things better. And to some extent, there was definitely great progress. They were able to take some of the antibiotics that were discovered from nature, especially from microbes, and add a few things, modify a few things, make things much stronger, um, or that could have a longer efficacy in the body. Um, although that constant development of antibiotics has also contributed to the rise of antibiotic resistance, but that's a different conversation. Um, but what happened is that's, I think, in the 80s, that type of mentality infiltrated, in a way, the educational system as to, like, we can do it better in the lab. Because for a certain period, we could. But then that certain period hit a, you know, maximum. And then all of a sudden, there's only so far that our imagination as humans can go. The way that nature builds things, especially chemistry, is just out of this world. We cannot think that way. And I think because we can only go as far as our own human imagination, there was a certain limit that we hit as chemists. And I feel like in the last decade or so, there's been this kind of desire to go back, especially as we see this rise of antibiotics. And the fear as to like, well, it already made us lose so much money. What do we do different this time? And I think that's where you enter new biodiversity hotspots or new methods to see this or just think beyond the box. Don't just go and collect the same type of soils and et cetera. Just go in places farther and look differently as well. It was so common that the fastest and easiest way was collect samples of sediment from somewhere and then take them to the lab. Easy, yes, but I think that's why it makes sense that you had so much rediscovery. What about, for example, looking at stingless bee honey and kind of trying to trace back where those molecules may come from or what plants and then going back and looking into them for medicines and it's not necessarily just cutting down the tree to access that medicine sometimes the microbes that learn to grow in and around where you could literally access them by just a swap end up producing the same medicines it happens with taxols such a famous anti-cancer drug and so i i have seen in the academic world that there's a strong desire to do that i haven't seen the funding that has come up to meet that just yet and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years yeah it will it's exciting (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it's exciting. I think that's like more important than ever that we all take like a humility, you know, bath and then kind of go back to that indigenous knowledge because I think there's so much to discover there. Like I'll give you an example. And this was the Nobel Prize winner in medicine in 2000, 
15, I'm going to I don't want to mispronounce her name, so I'll make you look it up instead. I think it's Yu Yu, um, a Chinese doctor and scientist that got this prize along after like her discovery. But um, before the 2000s, there were so many problems with malaria, especially during wars, during invasions, and just in general in, in rural areas. And there was no really a clear medicine. And so what she did was she went back to old school books. And I'm talking like very old type of Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine books and started to see what the ancestors had already pointed as what plants to treat what with. And amongst all many pages, um, she says in the story that she found this one plant that people tend to use often for infections at the time that they were really hard to treat with otherwise. And it was thanks to that connection back to indigenous ancestral knowledge that she basically rediscovered and not with the scientific method and was able to discover a, a drug that became one of the t- t- top 10 World Health Organization like essential medicines to treat malaria from that end and got the Nobel Prize because of that discovery. So I think it's a, it's a beautiful lesson that I hope we see more of. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think it speaks to so much as well around, you know, just as an end user of a potential medicine or drug of like, we're, you know, I think increasingly people are conscious of what they're putting in their bodies, particularly around food, but also Taking, I hate taking tablets because I don't know what they are. Um, but actually, understanding that something comes from the natural world—you know, something. This is this is something that exists. It's it's natural in, in inverted commas. Just for those of us who are concerned with what we're putting in our bodies, connection to land, connection to cultural heritage—it's huge. And I'll tell you that most chemists that I know are really scared to take um, commercial medicines because at the end it is people making this in, in a lab, you know, and we don't think about it. Like you said, oh, people take ibuprofen, aspirin, et cetera. You just see it, this white pill, you assume that everything's is perfect. But now when we're talking about experimental drugs, let's say for rare cancers where you don't really make it at such a big commercial level just yet. And if you were to dive into the chemistry of that, you learn that there are certain, for example, metals that are used in the process of making it and there is certain residual levels that there, of course, there are limits that are considered safe for human consumption, but that still means it, there's an allowance of certain levels to certain extent, which I think do contribute to some side effects as you get some some medicines. It is. And so I also personally, I guess uh, I'm such a like health driven, I love fitness and all of that. I, and as a, like, as a previous synthetic chemist as well, I am so intrigued to yeah, just having that reconnection. And this is not, you know, synthetic chemistry has given us so much and continues to save so much life. But I do think we need to reconnect stronger with that natural world. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think that kind of moves us nicely into the method of undertaking some of this research and study. I think it's that beautiful marriage of adventure slash exploration with an end goal that's going to kind of serve humanity and move science forwards. And, you know, what are the methods? I assume you're not just sending other people out into the field or looking this stuff up online. I assume you're traveling to these places and conducting the research. Yeah, I think the methods come down to do it collaboratively. I think, you know, to think that one group alone could get it all done or could do it well, it's just, you know, it's just impossible. Um, So before in my PhD, I was uh, in the University of Michigan. I was in one of the labs that are known like worldwide for natural product discovery medicine, one of the top five leading labs in the world. And I thought that my PI did a beautiful job of partnering with local universities um, to try to ensure that all the work gets done, not only as safely, but as ethical as possible. Uh, So I learned so much from him on that building collaborations institutionally through even amongst countries for some of the first projects that for the Bowling River microbes projects, when I first proposed that idea, we had to go through a, a two-year process with the Peruvian government to get all the permits and to do it as um, ethical as possible and ensuring community engagement from the start. And, you know, it was not just our lab. We had we were collaborating and continued to do that with a lab in Peru and engaging students and also realizing what capacities they have that we don't have that we can complement each other. So in that case, for example, we decided, okay, we're going to be diving into the microbial, like sediment-derived microbial world. They're going to be diving into the water-derived microbes as well as the fungi because they had more experience with that. So I think by acknowledging what each can bring to the table, maybe much more, like a bit more efficiently than the other and what, you know, then supplementing that. Um, and that's something that I've tried actively to continue to do with now with my organization. So I opened a nonprofit in Peru last year and we're actively working on it now uh, to continue research, but with a strong arm in conservation storytelling. I was this close between academia after doing my postdoctorate in the US or starting kind of my own thing, but also it makes no sense to start from zero and try to reinvent the wheel. Um, but and I appreciate the academic world so much. I wanted to be connected with it, but I didn't necessarily want it to be fully in because I feel like I wanted to have more of a flexibility to tell the stories and to push on the conservation side, which we don't see strongly in academia. And I feel very passionate about that because it's great to do the science. What happens if it stays there? And so we are partnering with research with the Institute of Investigation of the Peruvian Amazon, which is the largest research center in Peru, and the local scientists over there, as well as a Peruvian university and one in the UK. So on my side, I'm leading the expedition work. And that goes really tightly together with the Amazonian community leaders, which is, okay, what are the needs of the community? What do you thing needs to still be explored? What would you want to see it be explored and have that be a, conser- a conversation before we even dive like deeper into the field? And so we started with the Stingless Bee project, which was, okay, this is what has been done so far. What as a community would you think deserves to be explored further? And for example, one of the things that came out of that conversation was, well, we would want to know what plants to tree more, what plants to to plant around more or trees to plant around so that their bees could be healthier but that their honey could be much more 
medicinal. And so all of a sudden now, not only do you have a conservation side on that, but you have to look at the chemistry of the plants so that you can end up making that connection from this is what we have found in the honey, et cetera, and also how to make the honey safer because it is common to find pesticide residues in honey worldwide now. Three out of four samples contain pesticides to a certain extent. Big study on this. I'm sorry, I know everybody, every time I tell this story, somebody's never heard it. Um, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking because there was this study with over 6,000 samples from virtually every country almost, or at least all continents. Three out of four honey samples contain pesticides. So it's a thing. How do you limit it? How do you make it better? Um, and so another thing that I think research deserves that we're also trying to do is not just have it being led by somebody that is experienced, like on our end, that are experienced already in the science world, but bringing in students, which end, can end up asking such beautiful questions that if you don't listen, I think you miss out on so much. And so keeping that fresh perspective. And so not just students from, you know, I think it deserves a, a, a nice synergy of international locations, but also local locations. So right now we're trying to prioritize integrating students from a community that is really deep into the jungle. It takes about 24 hours in a boat to get to the nearest city, but they are getting really committed to further education. And we've been able to connect with the first person to go to school from that community um, who's finishing her undergrad studies, who I think is going to be an incredible leader uh, and already is to integrate her perspective and her point of view into the work that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's so amazing. And it's opening up a whole new world that I knew nothing about. Oh, um, thank you. Well, and how much of this, again, this is a disappointingly stupid question in a way, but like how much of this is under threat, you know, from climate change, deforestation, et cetera, all of these amazing natural remedies, this, this natural world that we have at our fingertips? how much of it is at risk of being lost? Uh, it is so much that I cannot even quantify it because when we look at natural medicines, we're not just looking at plants uh, in my case. So if we look just at plants, then anything that gets deforestation on it, immediately you are losing all the, the plants that are associated and the potential medicines that come with it. With the understanding also that less than 1% of Amazonian plants or trees have been explored with the scientific methods. And let that sink in for a minute. Less than 1%, I know. It's true and it's wild. They have been explored traditionally a lot, but not with the scientific method for multiple reasons. Um, so that's already such a big, you know, every time I, I go or I get to connect with local scientists, I think I've discovered about newer species and newer things, uh, new, newer uses. So I cannot even quantify the amount of information we're losing there every time. I mean, every 15 seconds we're losing a, the size of a football area, a football stadium in the Amazon. Um, now, if we dive and continue that into the microbial world, that number multiplies by, I, you know, exponentially, just considering that a lot of the antibiotics that we have in the pharmacy do come from microbes and that you can have microbial communities that differ vastly within small periods or with, within small locations. Then all of a sudden, when you cut a big stadium of trees, okay, yes, you lost that floral diversity. What about the microbial? Could there have been there the next antibiotic? We truly don't know. And that was part as to why we wanted to start 
with the Boiling River Microbial Project because in the Amazon, we know extremely little about microbes. We have explored the deep ocean and we have explored the space more than the microbial world in the Amazon. And considering the implications that that has for human health and for human advancement, like bioremediation tools, that's just like shocking. But why? Why have we explored so little? I think it started from what I was mentioning in the 80s, this kind of like, let's go back to synthetic chemistry and let's focus back on it. Uh, also is the access. I don't think many people have the access to be able to do the work in a, like in regulations with the country. Brazil has been a lot more open for uh, scientific investigations with other countries for a longer time. Peru has been a lot more closed off. I think that comes from the Spanish invasion and the Incas and all the stealing of gold. I think culturally and historically as a country, stay really close. We had a lot of issues, even me as a Peruvian, just because I was in a different institution for a microsecond, I was not considered Peruvian, uh, at least in the oral communications when I had to kind of make a case as to like, you know. Um, but I do have seen in the last five years alone there are many of the ministries and entities and the re regulatory systems really that end up making these decisions do want it to shift back to like, okay, no, we understand that in order to protect or even bring money to protect the country, we do need to allow these collaborations. And we do understand, okay, yes, it needs to be Peru, but it also needs to, from abroad, it needs to be a collaboration. So I do, for the first time, I will say in the last five years, there is these frameworks, like legal frameworks in place. There wasn't one for microbial studies when I started. We had to start up from zero. And that's why it took two years. So I would like to think that that's going to become a bit of an easier path moving forward, uh, but with strong regulations in place to, not, you know, to, to ensure protection. Um, so in terms of hope, that's such an interesting always uh, topic. If we, the threats are imminent. The threats are happening. We see it every single time we are from plastics. And I have seen some of these crazy algae mats that grow in the Bowling River also learn to grow in and around plastics. But that could also be a solution um, from, you know, detecting more pesticides, all other contaminants in rainwater in the Amazon or in honey samples and et cetera. So it is in and everywhere, in and around. But I think the idea that there are more indigenous voices more than ever coming forward to not only speak, that's my puppy, but also take action. Um, I think that's what gives us hope. So the threat is imminent. We are already getting closer to what the world said. Oh, we cannot go beyond the 1.5 increase in global warming temperature. We're going to get there closer. That's a matter of like, that's known. And I actually talked about this recently with someone because I think we would have known that earlier if microbes would have been considered in climate change calculations. Um, but they were not really, not fully. And I think that has been a major contributor because now, finally, I'm seeing in the media, oh, the methane that is produced from the gut microbiome, from you know, like uh, cows and et cetera, is a big contributor to climate change. Scientifically, we knew that a long time ago, right? We are only seeing in the media now. And so... Anyways, I stay hopeful, but I do think there needs to be more driving action from these big organizations that talk about conserving and giving so much money or companies or donors, et cetera, giving so much money to big organizations that then it stays in the ether and then may say they contribute. I, you know, 
to actually working with local groups. Yeah. God, there's a whole series to unpack here. <laughs> um, it's actually giving me an idea. <laughs> um, yeah. But now I'm really interested to talk to you about, you know, you're talking about the kind of the bureaucracy in a good sense and a bad sense of, well, it can take two years to get a license or a permit. And I guess I understand why these things need to be done properly. But it's a term I only heard recently, this whole idea of like biopiracy. Yep. Um, I wondered if you could explain, you know, what that is and does that still happen regularly? Yeah, so there's actually regulatory like offices in place around the world, especially in the US, that quite literally go out and look for scientific publications, especially or other things out there in the internet that claim to have gained a knowledge or a product or a something from whether it's indigenous knowledge or from a location that is remote and foreign to them without any acknowledgement of legal permits, legal regulations, or collaboration with locals. Uh, and so that's actually, I mean, people get in trouble. I've seen, I haven't seen somebody get in trouble directly from it, but I definitely have seen people not being able to publish and like millions of dollars of work going to trash because there was no dis- of these systems in place. I think before it happened, you know, because you didn't know and people perhaps didn't do their due diligence to learn, fine. I think now there's enough information to do know to do things right. So biopiracy is basically, the, the if you think of the concept of pirates, going and extracting something that is not meant to be yours or meant to be extracted and exploiting for economic benefits without any retribution back. And so there's been many treaties in place. The most famous one is the Nagoya Protocol by the United Nations to ensure that there is equal benefits of sharing, etc., um, but even within that, it kind of stays very open. Even the contract, and I'm going to be fully transparent, perhaps I haven't talked about this before, but even the contract we had to go through with Peru for the genetic access and the collection of the micros from the Bowling River, we had to hind- sign this whole contract with the Ministry of Production in Peru that said, oh, if anything was to come from here, although our intention was not um, economic development at the time, um, uh, you need to share 50% of that with the country. Up until then, that sounds good. And as a Peruvian, I agree it needs to be shared with the country. What happens when the money comes in? What country? What government does it go? I know politics quite well. And as Peruvian, everybody has to know politics and be aware that our country and political system changes all the time. And we see that, I think, more often now everywhere in the world. What happens? Okay, 50%, even if that comes in, is there any system in place to actually make sure that the community or the area that that comes through gets benefit? I will go on a limb to pretty much think it's not going to happen like that. It's going to go, the money's going to go in if something was to happen. It's not, I doubt it's going to go into communities, which is why I think there needs to be a direct link where the communities are integrated from, from the beginning to avoid biopiracy. Yeah. It's so complicated. <laughs> but um, at the same time, it's so clear and obvious. Um, I'm learning a lot. This is excellent. So... <laughs> When you look at, I mean, I'm guessing you're around my age, like early 30s or late 20s. Um, yeah, yeah, 30. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you're kind of early stages in your career in some senses. What do you want to achieve? What do you want to do? I would hope to establish this organization for others to continue it so that there is a space in Peru. I had to leave Peru because there was no really opportunities to do research. Um, that's why I had to leave when I was 18. Like, well, one that the career I wanted to follow didn't exist at the time. It does now, but that there were no 
clear research opportunities at the time. Um, and I even had an uncle working at a university that had some of these courses and there still, there was none. And even now, as I've been connecting with students and trying to get them opportunities, it's actually quite hard for, unless the student is already pursuing a, you know, degree, full degree in the university, it's hard for the students to get that opportunity, which is kind of silly in my opinion, because how do you know unless you do it? Um, and so my goal it's going to be to really build a solid foundation for this organization where you have strong partnerships with universities so active research can continue to happen in a way that expands beyond what typical academic investigations, you know, where they typically take place. So by having a strong conservation arm with the communities, there's a bit more of this conversation between science and conservation and community work, um, increased access on the academic world, and increase elevation from the indigenous communities. Um, so I think having the indigenous leaders as co-authors in the first paper that we have under, one of the first papers on, on this project that we have under review right now, I hope it's going to inspire more of that. And then also integrating the arts from the start, from the Sting Lesbian Project, it was, I already was thinking about storytelling for the first time. And so when we started to develop the idea of the project, I said, okay, this is the first time I have the chance that I come in with like this full mentality of storytelling and actually have the ability to start holding projects. So we integrated uh, a Peruvian artist, Ana Sotelo, who's an incredible photographer and videographer, to basically work with us from the start as to like understanding what type of story she thought would be more interesting or how to portray it then see if we could also guide part of the exploration and the research through that perspective and see what we can learn. And I think it's been such a beautiful conversation because by trying to answer some of the things she's been looking for, it makes us think in perhaps different ways and perhaps look at collecting things that we didn't think of before or, you know, these other angles. So I think having this place where those three things can merge and have it be led by Peruvians and hopefully at least encourage a bit more of this decentralization of science in Peru with the mentality of always strengthening collaborations abroad. Um, yeah, I think that's going to be my main goal and uh, and raising funds to do it. You know, it's been, it's been a, a challenge. I, for work, I do science consulting, public speaking, um, and, and a few different things, but I think the ability to be able to establish that and, and show that it can happen, it can be self-sustainable. It's, uh, it's going to be my, my big goal in the next years. Brilliant. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, I'm conscious of time, but to, um, I'm really interested in your connection to the place that you're from essentially. And before we started this conversation, as in press record, you told me that you were now living in the UK, having lived in the US for a long time. Do you miss Peru? I go very often. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm living actively in the UK, but I spend like two months in Peru at the beginning of the year and I'm going there for a month very, very soon. So yes, I do miss it. Um, I do think like I get to visit quite often for like the exploration work and for my family that I, that need of being in Peru gets, you know, the, the cup gets full and then I go again and then I go again. Uh, I do hope to live more permanently in Peru, at least for a few years in the future um, I do understand that to to do that and to be able to have the, the the organization running, I do need to attract international support and voices. And so I think that's we were very close. We were between England or Peru when when we left the U.S. with my husband. To be honest, um, 
I was dying. We were both, he was really also very intrigued in Peru, but we understand what we need to do right now so that we could sustain the work that we want to do and then have that flexibility. Um, and if I was to start directly alone from Peru, I understand the limitations of support within the country. And so I understand that that may only run for a little bit and then stop. And I don't, I, I want to ensure longevity. So, but I love Somerset. I love the UK. Um, so we'll probably end up between both, to be honest, with families in both countries. Yeah. So um, I always end these conversations with the same two questions. Um, the first is, I'm really interested in these two with you. Uh, what scares you? Uh, the spirits in the jungle. So, yeah, go on, please elaborate. (laughs) Um, If you ever get the chance to go into virgin jungle at night, I hope you get to do it with us and definitely with local leaders. But if you ask some of these people, night hunters, people that live and are there all the time and have explored the jungle at night, may have faced like jaguars or anacondas quite literally. I have like recounts firsthand. The thing that they are more scared about are the spirits. Uh, Chupichaki is the one, I'm, I'm maybe mispronouncing it, but um, there's this one that every Amazonian will describe it the same. They all do believe it, which is that you may be in the middle of the jungle and everything's going to go really cold and really quiet. And if you have quietness in the jungle, it's a very bad indicator of most likely, you know, if we talk scientifically, a larger predator. Like I have had recounts of a girl knowing that a jaguar ended up following her um, and that looking like that. But they claim that it's a spirit that we'll try to take away from you. And that's why people go in with tobacco and garlic and quite literally how those stories sometimes develop in movies. Um, But I will say I understand where the feeling comes from, whether there's an explanation to it or not, or if it's just an instinct or just a belief, whatever it is. I feel like I've experienced it and it's one of those unexplainable things that I don't know if I ever want to have an explanation for it um, that I'll just stay away from. (laughs) I'm going to throw a bonus. Well, it's more a comment than a question and break the rules because I just think with this conversation, one of the things I'm loving so much is the bridge because I feel this so keenly. Spirituality is often seen as this kind of left field, like loony thing these days. It's very different to religion, obviously, but as a scientist with a PhD, the idea that there is also a deep spirituality, I think is beautiful and positive. And those two things do not need to be held separate, I don't think. And I don't know if you do. I agree. No, I don't think they need to be held separately. And I think anybody that spends time working in the field with locals will appreciate that immensely. And finally then, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but what brings you hope? The young Amazonians right now, I would say. I work with kids all around, and so it's always kids, but I think the young Amazonians have seen, I mean, this specifically, the latest student we've engaged in our projects, she, to complete her degrees, she had to walk about two hours in mud to get to the nearest river in the nearest community to be able to access internet with one of the near, nearby posts of internet during COVID Uh, because everything had shut down and she couldn't be in the city during her study. She had to be back home. Uh, And yet she managed to graduate. The first person in her town, the one that is 24 hours away in a boat. So it takes, you know, two, three days probably to get to the nearest city. I haven't been able to go, but I hope to. 
um, and her ideas on how to protect trees. Like she's obsessed with the idea of protecting trees and knows everything about how to know if a tree is healthy or not by looking at it and doing the scientific method, but also taking in what she has learned from her mom. Um, so people like her, I think, are the new voices that we should be looking at. Amazing. I have adored this conversation. Thank you very, very uh, much. Thank you so much. Me too, Mai. I appreciate the insight and the questions. You've been incredible. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.